Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Let's pray together. Lord, we almost invariably will pray when we break bread together, have a meal together, and ask you to bless it. And even much more now, as we sit for a spiritual meal in the Word of God, as you break the bread of life to us. Lord, this is part of our worship to you tonight, to give you our time and to give you our attention to sit here for the remaining part of the service and tell you that what you have to say to us, this message from heaven to us, is important for us to listen with rapt attention and then trusting your Spirit will make application to our lives as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got to say that the devil reminds me of a scene in probably the very first movie that I remember watching. And the movie was The Wizard of Oz. And uh, in The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy and her three friends finally make it to the kingdom of Oz. They are greeted, I shouldn't really use that term, but they are met by the wizard himself. But the wizard acts in a terrifying manner. He appears as a ghoulish head and a ball of fire and even makes very accusatory remarks when they say, look, we've done what you wanted us to do. Now give us what we've come for. And the wizard says, come back tomorrow. And they question him. And the wizard says, you ungrateful creatures in that voice. And uh, as he's saying, you ungrateful creatures... The little dog Toto pulls the curtain back and there is a frail man holding a microphone and the guy in the microphone sees what's happening and says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. (laughs) And as it turns out, the Wizard of Oz isn't a wizard at all. He's just a man from Omaha who happened to come to Oz as the story goes And there was no ruler, and he became the supreme ruler. But he was all a fake. And I say that Satan reminds me of that man behind the curtain because he too makes very denunciatory and accusatory remarks, acts very intimidating, but in reality, he's just a created being, a fallen angel. In fact, the Bible seems to indicate in Isaiah 14 what we will say when one day we look upon him and declare, everyone there will stare at you and ask, can this be the one who shook the earth and the kingdoms of the world? As if to say, when we finally see him, and we will, we're going to be shocked. We're going to be shocked. Shocked to see this one who is called the God of this world simply turn out to be the man behind the curtain, like in The Wizard of Oz. Satan has um, been allowed to exercise a certain amount of power, but as we will see tonight, it's kept under uh, strict parameters. And tonight we're going to peek 
behind the curtain. We're going to look at the invisible world, the world of the supernatural. We find that Job is the subject of a conversation. We discover that both God and Satan are very interested in this man, Job. The conversation goes on. Job doesn't know what's happening. And we have a problem and we find a solution. The problem is the devil makes some pretty stout accusations against Job and in effect against God in chapters 1 and 2. And that is answered by the solution that we will read in Revelation chapter 12. So we turn to Job 1 and 2, but also put a marker in Revelation chapter 12. Both of those chapters, or all three of those chapters, I should say, are very similar. In that both of them take us to the war of the ages, what Donald Gray Barnhouse called the invisible war. So let's begin by looking at the problem. We read our text last week. We're going to go look at it a little more in depth tonight. And we'll see Job's problem, and that is the accuser. Now, the problem that Job has is compounded by the fact that Job himself is a very godly man. And though he is a godly man, Satan still manages to make accusations against him. You'll notice in verse 1, he is called blameless. We saw that last week. Blameless means morally innocent. He lacks nothing in purity. Also, he is called upright. Somebody who walks straight ahead, doesn't veer off the path. Here's a guy of complete integrity. And then in verse 5. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them, rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now watch how God describes him, that there is none like him on the earth. There's those words again, a blameless an upright one who fears God and shuns evil. So, so far, if we read all of these verses together, we have a picture of Job. He has a big family. He has a lot of money. He has a successful business. And he loves God. And you might be thinking, well, who wouldn't love God? Who wouldn't serve God if he had all of that stuff? Now, that is the very heart of the accusation that Satan will bring against him. Before we get to that, there's something that needs to be said. Looking at the life of Job should end the notion once and for all that godly people don't suffer. That is a teaching. Unfortunately, it has resurfaced in the church. It is still found in pockets of evangelical churches that if you have enough faith, you never have to live a Satan-defeated life. You never have to have any physical disease. You can always name it and claim it and always be healed. You can have perfect health and perfect abundance. And then we get to the book of Job. And that throws a wrench in that thinking like nothing else. 
We discover that no one deserves suffering less than Job, and no one or at least few people have ever suffered like Job. I've always been interested in the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. You know that by now. I quote him all the time. He's so quotable. He was a godly man, but he's a man who suffered greatly. He died at a relatively young age of 58 years old. He had chronic gout in his feet, some respiratory issues, and he suffered emotional depression on a regular basis. He even admitted once to his congregation, I have suffered the depths of which I hope none of you ever reach. Now here's Spurgeon, godly, a servant of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, loved God's people and loved the Lord, and yet he suffered immensely. One would ask, like we would ask with Job, why? Perhaps some insight can be given to us by Spurgeon himself. He writes, I believe the hardest-hearted, most unlovely Christians in all the world are those who never have had much trouble. And those who are the most sympathizing, loving, Christ-like are those that have the most affliction. The worst thing that can happen to any of us is to have our path too smooth. Now, Job's path was hardly smooth, And neither was Charles Haddon Spurgeon's. Now, let's look at the critic of this godly man. After God boasts of him in verse 8, look at verse 9. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now... But now, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Look at chapter 2. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Now here it is again. Have you, the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And he still holds fast to his integrity. Although you have incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. We've read now a few times the name Satan. The word Satan means enemy, adversary, because he is your enemy. Now, by the way, that's the relationship that you want with him. You'd rather have him as your enemy and not your friend. There's a lot of people that are friends with the devil. They don't know it, but because they have rejected Christ, they're on his team. 
So if you're going to have any relationship with the devil, with Satan at all, it's to be his enemy. And that's what Satan means, adversary or enemy. Sometimes in scripture, he's called devil. And the term devil means accuser or slanderer or defamer. Satan appears in Genesis 3 and we find him go throughout the scripture until finally his career will end in Revelation chapter 20. Now I realize in reading what I just read that not everyone can read this without flinching. What I mean by that is they don't believe in a literal devil. They read Satan, they read about the devil, but they don't actually believe there is a person in existence today that is really Satan. According to the Gallup poll organization, 70% of Americans believe in the devil. But only half of that 70% say that he is a personal being. The other half say he's just a symbol or an impersonal being. Now listen to this. George Barna, who researches mostly church stuff, made a statement and asked people, agree or disagree somewhat or completely. Here's the statement. The devil is not a living being, but rather just a symbol of evil. Of those who claim to be born again, 32% strongly agreed with that statement. That's a shock. 11% agreed somewhat, 5% said they don't know, and 48% either agree that Satan is symbolic or they don't know. That's the total composite. It's like the six-year-old boy that struggled with this whole devil thing and he was having a conversation with his buddy and he said, I don't believe there's a real devil. And his friend said, you don't? Well, there is. The Bible talks about him all the way through. And he said, yeah, but he's not really real. It's like Santa Claus. He turns out to be your dad. (laughs) Dads don't like that. But when Jesus spoke of the devil or Satan or the wicked one, all of those terms were employed by our Lord. He spoke of him as being a real person with real personality with an agenda. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I was there when it happened, Jesus said. Jesus spoke of Satan's work against the gospel In Mark chapter 4, he said, the word is sown, that is the scripture, the truth is sown. And as soon as people hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. I love the simplicity of Dwight Lyman Moody, the pastor in Chicago, years ago, of course. He said, I believe in the devil for two reasons. Number one, the Bible says he's real. Number two, I've done business with him. I've done business with him. There is obviously evil in the world. If there is no devil, pray tell who's doing his work. Something is going on. Now, look back at verse 8 and notice a word. It appears twice in our text. Have you considered my servant Job? And then chapter 2, verse 3. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, what got my attention in that verse is what it says in the margin of my Bible. In the margin of my Bible, it says, it's literally written, have you set your heart on my servant Job? In other words, it's a rhetorical 
question. You've been eyeing my servant Job, Satan, haven't you? In fact, I discovered the word that is used here is sometimes used as a military word for a general who studies the defenses of a city to lay siege to it. You see, Satan has been studying Job with a keen eye, looking for weak points so he could attack him. That is his M.O. That is his M.O. Jesus once said to Peter in Luke chapter 22, Simon, Satan has been asking for you that he might sift you like wheat. Boy, if I was Simon Peter, I'd I'd stop dead in my tracks. And I'd immediately say, what'd you tell him? (laughs) Satan has been asking for you, Peter. He has an agenda against you. He wants to sift you like wheat. Listen to it in another translation. Satan has asked excessively that you be taken out of the care and protection of God, that he might sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. That's the best news yet, but I have prayed for you. So, so far, there are five truths we can understand now about Satan and this problem that Job is having. Number one, Satan actively studies people, either Satan or his minions. He's got a network of lots of them. They seem to actively study us, which is an unnerving thought. You ever been in a restaurant and you discover that person in that booth across has been staring at you the whole time? It's like, what's up with that? They are staring. They are studying Truth number two, Satan is still accountable to God. Notice he appears here with the other sons of God, a term for angelic beings, and he appears to give an account. Truth number three, Satan operates, but he operates within strict parameters. Everything that he does, he is permitted to do. He has to get God's permission in order to do it. He checks in, there's an accountability, and then there are strict parameters by which he operates. Remember in Matthew chapter 8, the demons that were in the demon-possessed man, and they see Jesus, and the demons cried out when they saw Jesus and said, permit us, permit us to go into the herd of swine. And it says Jesus permitted them. So let me just, without getting bogged down on this, say this. If God for whatever reason is in God's sovereign mind and care, if God permits you to be hassled or tried in the fire of affliction, even by the enemy, know this, he has his eye on you and his finger on the thermostat. He has not walked away from the oven and forgotten about you. I've been in here too long. He He knows. He knows. Fourth truth that we can discover so far Satan has access to both earth and heaven. Did you see that? He's been walking to and fro throughout the earth. He appears before God with the other sons of God. Now that shocks a lot of people. Here's the shocker. Satan is not in hell. He has never been in hell. He will one day. And when he gets there, by the way, he's not going to be like the chief celebrity. He's going to be the chief tormented one. 
And in fact, the Bible tells us that he will be tormented, Revelation 20, tormented day and night forever. So he's not going to be in charge of anything like the stupid characters or cartoons play him out to be. He'll be the chief victim. And truth number five, he spends a lot of time accusing us, God's people, before the throne of God. In fact, in Revelation 12, he is called the accuser of our brethren. The accuser of our brethren. In Zechariah, it's a great book in the Old Testament where Zechariah receives eight visions about the future of Jerusalem and the security of that city. And in chapter 3, he gets a vision where there's Joshua the high priest who is at that time. And it says, Joshua the high priest was standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan was standing at his right side to accuse him. Now, I know what the answer is going to be, but have you ever heard those accusations? Have you ever heard those thoughts that come into your mind? You call yourself a Christian. How can you go to church tonight? Look at you. You've heard those thoughts. You think God's going to hear your prayer now? You know, he's really a creep. He's really insidious. Because he comes and before we sin, he tempts us and he says, go ahead, you'll get away with it. And then if we succumb to that temptation and we sin, then he comes and he accuses us and says, you'll never get away with this. He's that insidious. Now let's look at the criticism again. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? You've... Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Hey, God, Job never had it so good. You pamper him. You treat him with favoritism. The accusation that Job brings or Satan brings against Job is that Job's service of God and goodness toward God is all mercenary. Job is a mercenary. The only reason Job serves God is because of what he gets out of God. And so the real issue that Job uh, or Satan brings up in Job is, is it possible to love God apart from God's blessings? And Satan would say, nope. Take those blessings away. Take away his wealth. Take away his children. Take away his health. And he will not only doubt you, he will curse you because people only follow you for what they can get out of you. That's the accusation. Now let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. Let's move from Job to Jesus. We'll do it quickly. Revelation chapter 12 is in the middle of the tribulation period, yet future. And there is a breed of people called the overcomers in this book. Let's see how Jesus answers Job. Satan has always been a liar, always been a hassler, always been an accuser. He did it all the way through history to Adam, to Job, to Joshua the high priest, to our Lord Jesus Christ, etc. His activity was once focused in heaven in a great rebellion. We find out in Revelation 12. This is without reading the whole chapter. A third of the angels fell with Satan. So he's got help. And that usually is where people focus. There's a lot of demons out there. But think about it. One third fell. That means two thirds are left. They're outnumbered. But Satan fell from heaven. Now his activity is confined to the earthly realms. 
Now let's see how these tribulation saints overcome him. Chapter 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail. Nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out. The serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And here's the key verse. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and that they did not love their lives to the death. Satan can be overcome in his accusatory, denunciatory posture toward believers. Number one is the blood of the lamb. Now remember in Egypt, the blood was applied to the doorpost in the form of a cross, the lintels and the doorpost, and the blood of the lamb that covered that house protected the household. And in the same manner, God will bless your home, your marriage, your family, your life, not because you're a good person, not because you pray two hours a day, but because of the blood of the lamb. That's how you overcome him. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, if anyone sins... Anybody raise your hand on that one? Does anybody here ever sin? If anyone sins, you that didn't raise your hand, we're going to get you. We have another sermon for you. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Advocate means lawyer. So here's, here's Jesus and here's Satan. Satan is the, um, Jesus is our defense attorney. Satan is the prosecuting attorney, and Satan is condemning you and me constantly before the throne of God. But here is Jesus Christ, the defense attorney. And what would our defense attorney have us do? Fight the devil, yell at the devil, rebuke the devil for being so rude in his accusations? No. You know why? Because they're all true. That's why. All of the accusations Satan would make about you before God are true. You really don't deserve God's love, nor do I. We are really messed up. So Jesus said something interesting in Matthew 5. He said, agree with your adversary. It's a brilliant strategy. So when Satan condemns you, don't retort back and say, well, I didn't mean to do it. I'm really not a bad person at heart. No, I, I, think, I think you say something like, he's right. In fact, there's a lot more stuff on me he doesn't know about because he doesn't read my thoughts, my mind. But the depth of sin that is in me as described in the Bible that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? I'm even worse than he's probably accusing me of before the throne of God. He's absolutely right. But the blood of my defense attorney has cleansed me from it. So it's not anything I've done. It's not any, any righteousness I have. It's all about the blood. That's why it says in Romans chapter 8, God did not spare his son, but freely gave him up for us. 
And then it says, the next verse, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Because of the blood. Because of the blood. Charles Spurgeon was right. Nothing provokes the devil like the cross. That's why it mystifies me when churches today want to despiritualize their worship and take away the songs that talk about the blood of Jesus because it's going to turn people off. You have no gospel. You have no defense. You have no offense. You have no standing without the blood of Jesus Christ. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. There's a beautiful old hymn. I hear the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them well and thousands more. Jehovah findeth none. Yeah, all those accusations, they're actually right. Uh, I wouldn't, like, argue on that. I just agree with it. Say, but the blood of my attorney, my advocate, Jesus Christ, is enough. You overcome him first by the blood applied to your life. Second, by the testimony. The word, it says in that verse, the word of their testimony. Now, testimony is often a formal legal statement. Your testimony is what God has done for you. Now, you should be able to answer the question when anybody asks you, what has God done for you? You should be able to immediately to launch into some verbal statement about you were once this way, but then you received Christ, and then these changes happen. That's your testimony. Now, listen. The next time you feel guilty and accused, or the next time you're tempted, try this. Pull out your testimony. Think over in your own mind what God has done for you. If you're with a group of people who are worldly people, who are unconverted people, and they're trying to drag you into their sin, easiest way out, start giving them your testimony. Tell them how Jesus Christ, let the devil's kids know that you belong to Jesus. And I'll tell you what, they're not going to keep it up. There's going to be a change in that conversation. It is powerful, and it is threatening to the devil who doesn't want to let go of people. You just stake your claim. So let me tell you what Jesus did for me. Try it. Pull it out. Third and finally, your surrender. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony. Here's the last part. They did not love their lives to the death. Now, I don't know how much we're really going to be able to understand this, being Western Christians that, that haven't had the kind of persecution that brothers and sisters have had around the world. But the context is we're dealing with tribulation believers who in the future will be struggling because their way of economy will be taken away, their life will be threatened, they will be continually persecuted. But they overcame the accusatory remarks and stance of Satan because of the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and their surrender. They didn't love their lives to the death. In other words, they considered spiritual loyalty to be far more important than physical security. And if you get a person that believes that, they're unstoppable. They're unstoppable. Spiritual loyalty is far more important than my physical security or pampering. You don't stop people like that. Jesus said this, He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life 
in this world will keep it for eternal life. Satan can't touch that kind of person. They're unstoppable. They've already surrendered. So, when we make Jesus Christ our first love, and we put love of self second or third or fourth, you become more and more untouchable. They overcame him. It was a big problem. Job was even unaware of. He didn't hear the accusation, just like you don't hear them. But be rest assured, um, they're uttered. They're uttered. The blood of the Lamb, the word of your testimony, and your surrender to God. That your spiritual loyalty would be more important than physical security. You become more and more out of reach of the devil. There was a man at a Wednesday night prayer meeting in a church. They'd have him every Wednesday night. He would, he'd love to come, as did a bunch of them. And he prayed his prayer. And at the end of every Wednesday night, when it was his turn to pray, he would say, and Lord, clear the cobwebs out of my life. What he meant by that is, I've been doing some things that shouldn't be done, that are marring my testimony. These are sinful acts. So Lord, just clear the cobwebs out of my life. And every Wednesday night, he's end end his prayer, clear the cobwebs out of my life. Well, there was one other guy in that church who got tired of this. And when the guy said, clear the cobwebs out of my life, he stood up and said, Lord, don't do it. Kill the spider. (laughs) And that's a better approach. That's a better approach than just clearing out cobwebs to be an overcomer. So, here's the truth, baby Ruth. (laughs) Satan is the man behind the curtain. He accuses, he intimidates, he has studied us, and he knows the dirt on us, and it's all true. And if you think you're going to overcome the devil's tactics by saying, well, I'm a good person, and I go to church, and I read my Bible, and you've lost the battle. You have lost the battle. Because all of the dirt and all of the accusations and all of those things like you're not good enough, you're not worthy enough, you don't do this enough, you don't do that enough, they're all true. But the blood of the Lamb has been shed and you belong to God and no one can bring a charge against God's elect. So let that be your testimony. That's what God has done for you. And I can only ask the Spirit of God to take that third one and impose it onto our heart more and more that the more our spiritual loyalty becomes important rather than our personal, physical security and well-being and comfort, the more out of reach we become to the devil's ploys. So, Father, we pray for that. We pray in the name of your Holy Son, Jesus, that the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us would be the thing we look to, point to, rely on. Not anything we do, but something that has already been done on our behalf, that that would be the word of our testimony, what Jesus has done, what God has done, not what we can do or will do as we make promises. And then as we discover your grace and your love, that we would not love our own lives We would freely relinquish 
our present comfort for your eternal glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.